I want to share with you tonight uh, from the idea of the choice of discipleship. Now, that was a relatively long passage, right? So I'm going to reread the verses that I was drawn to, just to remind you and to let you know what I was focused on as I prepared for tonight. So I start at verse 60, and I read down to verse 71. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now I have to tell you, I was intrigued immediately by the fact that the scripture tells us that Jesus chose Judas to be one of the 12 disciples. And it says here that he knew from the first who would betray him, right? I mean, why would Jesus do that? Why would he choose Judas? Because being a chosen disciple in the Jewish education system, that meant that Judas and the others would leave their homes and their mundane lives to follow Jesus, literally to follow him, to go about with him, right? Learning how to live Torah exactly as Jesus would have learned it and lived it. So being chosen by Jesus as one of the 12 meant that Judas would be in personal, not only personal, but intimate, almost constant, learning relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I couldn't imagine choosing somebody to be up close and personal in my life if I knew they were going to betray me, right? I mean, how many of us have been betrayed? Do you know how that feels? If somebody, you know, you expect to have their confidence or their trust or that they believe in you and suddenly you find out by their actions, by their words or both, that they don't. I find it a little problematic that Jesus knew <laughs> and chose Judas anyway. But I'm not going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about the fact that not only did Jesus choose Judas, knowing he would betray him, but he did not treat him differently from the other disciples. What? <laughs> he even washed Judas' nasty, dusty feet. <laughs> I don't wash my own kids' feet. <laughs> and I'm a new grandma, so I might not even wash my, baby, my grandbaby's feet. But I'm saying, and he broke bread with him at the Passover meal along with all the other 11 disciples, right? The whole time knowing that Jesus was pretending, I mean Judas, I'm sorry, was pretending to be a loyal follower, right? So Judas was a treasurer for the group, so he had the money bag, right? And John's gospel tells us that Judas was stealing money. You can't tell me Jesus didn't know. <laughs> he feigned zealousness for the poor, as if he was truly aligned with Jesus' teachings. But this was the man that Jesus chose to follow him. And it seemed to me that Judas never changed as a result of his following Jesus. I mean, if you read the, the, the scriptures that refer to Judas, particularly in the book, book of John, they always have this descriptor, right? This qualifier, 
Judas the one who would betray Jesus. <laughs> Judas the one who was a traitor. Really? It's my claim to fame, right? <laughs> and then Jesus alluded to someone among them betraying him. And Judas never said, hey, yo, that's me. He never confesses, I, I'm that guy, right? And when Jesus gave him a gentle rebuke, when Judas suggested that the woman who broke the alabaster jar of oil to anoint Jesus' feet, he suggested, you know, she's wasting that. We could have sold that. We could have given money. We could have sold it for money to give alms to the poor. You know, he was skimming off the top, though, so he was really trying to pay himself. But John's commentary on Judas says that he just wanted to steal that money, indeed, and right after that, he agreed to betray Jesus to the Jewish elders. So it seems to me, even though Judas followed Jesus, his heart was unrepentant and his mind was unchanged. And I got really caught up in studying Judas, right? I mean, this, is, this intrigued me beyond measure. Because <laughs> right before I preached, when I started studying, I actually heard a sermon preached about Judas from Luke, right? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> But part of that sermon, uh, the preacher that I heard preaching, he, he talked and I've read commentary about Judas and how horrible he was, right? Just how retrograde, and that's kind of how we think about Judas. I mean, we, we, we give Judas no redeeming character whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying betrayal isn't bad, right? But who among us hasn't betrayed someone at some point in our lives? And if you think you haven't, I dare you to ask the people close to you. I dare you. And better yet, I dare you to ask God. <laughs> right? But how many among us have also not been disappointed because our expectations did not manifest? And what have our actions been? Right? Or maybe we've been morally suspect in our behavior and our thinking. I mean, I wasn't saved all my little life. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> I wouldn't really want to scrolls to be pulled back in front of y'all. So I believe that Judas can tell us a lot about human nature, if not our own individual selves. And more than that, I think he also can tell us about God's capacity to love us in spite of our failings. Yet Judas can be a great object lesson on the grace and mercy of God, if only we didn't judge him so harshly, so that we can't even see a little bit of ourselves in him. And so it's easy for me to overlook the thing that actually drew me even closer into this text. And that was the fact that many disciples turned back. So we got Judas over here, who's hard heart, unrepentant, and he betrayed Jesus. But then we got these other disciples, these many. I love that, the many. They turned back and they no longer went about with Jesus. I don't know if you, if you caught that. But did you wonder if they were disciples, why did they turn back? What was the issue, right? I mean, it says that they were offended, but what was the offense? Jesus had just talked about himself, equated him, really, with the symbolism of bread and food and drink, which in that tradition, in that culture, would have referred to Torah, right? The teachings of God about how to live and how to live out God's law. And so Jesus was saying, look, if you really take me in, if you really take my teachings in, you will have life. So maybe they got mad about that. Like, who is this guy, right? Or, it's a better theory, maybe they weren't really serious about actually following Jesus. 
because if you go back a little bit in the chapter, you see that this seems to be the same crowd that was listening to him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? The same crowd where Jesus performed the miracle with the two fish and the five loaves, and John's gospel says he feeds 5,000. So I could almost, almost guess, and Jesus calls them out, right? That all they really wanted was another fish dinner. I like fish dinners. <laughs> And they even asked him at that time, well, what must we do to do the work of God, right? So they just kind of want this quick, easy answer. So I'm thinking also that they complained because this teaching was not easy to understand. That it challenged them about how they thought about Torah and how to live out God's commands, and more important than that, what their true hunger was. Because it's also easy to ignore what you really need for what you think is best. So I'm of the mind to think that it's possible that the many disciples who turned away were looking for something a little less disciplined, right? Something that didn't require so much of themselves. And I don't know if you can identify with that, but I know I can. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. In my faith walk with Christ, <laughs> there have been quite a few difficult teachings I found it hard to accept. Now, while I won't go down all of those teachings, I trust you shall read for yourself, I will tell you that they challenged my way of thinking. They challenged my way of behaving or the rightness of decisions I have made. And I find it difficult when in my study of the life and work of Christ, I am provoked out of my own comfort zone. My priorities get rearranged and even my identity and my values have been confronted when I read about Jesus' teachings in the gospel to forgive unconditionally, to love beyond measure, and to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness first and foremost. Most of all, I know if we do it the right way, following Jesus just might separate us, me, from friends and family and social norms. I know I might not even look like the clear winner and my long-held beliefs might be snatched from my hands as my mind expands to believe what I'm challenged to believe, right? That I'm, uh, I, I, as I struggle and I strain to believe what is beyond my imagination and ability in ways that highlight, of all things, my own inability and my utter dependence on God for everything. Can anyone in the room relate to that? Any of that? So I have been tempted to turn back to. And when they decided to turn back, they went back into their communities, they went back among their family and friends and the way of life they had before. And I'm tempted to say that they were unchanged, but I just don't believe that was true because after all, they witnessed some miracles, right? They heard some teaching, right? So I would suggest that they were a bit disappointed. And in that way were changed, maybe disillusioned cynical because they didn't get what they expected to get from Jesus. They, they didn't get the easy provision, right? They didn't get the ticket, the golden ticket. You know, sometimes we sell that, that golden ticket if you confess, confess Christ and you go to heaven, but ah, is that really all there is? Hmm. So this group literally stopped following Jesus and his teachings. And that intrigued me because I learned that this following the rabbi or their teacher 
they would have been so connected. They would have been so connected. They would have watched everything he did. They would have, they would have listened to everything he said because they would have tried to emulate him. So much to the point that they become like Jesus. Fascinating, right? So when we hear that become like Jesus, it's kind of out of context. But you have to sit it squarely in the Jewish culture. And you have to sit it squarely in this understanding of how learning and knowledge was passed down. And so once they would become like their teacher, just like Jesus, guess what they would do? They would go and what? Make disciples, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Living just like they had been taught to live. And this is the life that the disciples were chosen for, all 12 of them. I'm going to name a few of them. I'm going to name them all. <laughs> so we got Simon, Peter, Andrew, John, and James, and even Judas were chosen to live in this kind of close personal relationship with Jesus. And I would say this is the life you and I have been chosen for today. But my question, right, the thing that had me scratching my head is how do we, as 21st century disciples, right, kind of removed from this whole context, how do we continue to follow Jesus when we are tempted to harden our hearts because of our own disappointments or even because of our own wills and selfish desires? And when the teachings of the way of Christ are difficult to accept and challenging to understand and we want to simply walk away from this faith walk, when we want to go through the motions of our faith communities and religious life, and we know that's easy, right? Because <laughs> people half the time just want you to show up and do what you say you're going to do. <laughs> you don't have to be connected on the inside to do that. Not really. Because sometimes we measure success by the number of people who show up and whether we can actually do the thing that we plan to do. So it's easy to show up disconnected and go through the motions and be okay. And that's a form of walking away. That's a form of turning back. So then we stop experiencing the fullness of eternal life in Christ. And there is a fullness of eternal life that we experience here on earth. So I contend when these times occur, we can continue to follow Jesus when we realize that, guess what? There is nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go. And when we contend, when we say, when we believe that there is nowhere else we can go, it is because... Not just because it sounds good, not just because we are taught that, but it's because we ourselves recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the son of the living God. What does that mean? We hear it almost ad nauseum. We hear it on Sundays. We sing songs about it. But what does that really mean? Well, that means that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us, among us, through us, which is amazing. The God who spoke and the universe was created is with us, present, active, living, empowering us, changing lives, right? I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm amazed. And this invitation, this choice of discipleship is that we learn to live in concert and communion with this God. The God who sees all and knows all. The God who made each and every one of us, who knows what you're thinking right now. He knows who's going to believe and who's not. <coughs> so we follow Jesus. That's what that means. We recognize that, hey, this guy right here 
lived the way that I need to know how to live with total faith and dependence and trust in God. And that is the thing that enables us to live this eternal life, right? And the eternal life we're talking about doesn't begin when, when this earthly existence ends, right? When we breathe our last. Because God is in eternity. That doesn't begin with us. What? What are we thinking? <laughs> but we go into the flow because we're in the unending presence of God. That's what eternal life is. We don't have to wait for that unless we're waiting on ourselves. But this is the belief. It's the belief in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection, and yes, the ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God that the disciples of Jesus must be engaged in in the first century and yes, even in this 21st and beyond. Because it's this belief that helps us interpret Jesus' teachings as the fulfillment of the law of love given to Moses on the mountain. It's this belief that keeps us strong in the face of, I'm trying to tell you, unrelenting inhumanity to man. And it's this belief that God is present in us and among us that offers hope that justice will in fact prevail. And that the kingdom of God will manifest on earth as it is in heaven while we still yet live. Family, when we realize that there is no philosophy, <laughs> there is no psychological construct, and there is no humanistic way of thinking that can get humankind out of the mess we found ourselves in. When we realize, when each and every one of us realizes for ourselves, we sang that song, right? We just sang it. Jim, you always do that. We just sang that song. If each and every one of us believes for ourselves that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we can press on past our own ideas, our own ideas, because we all have them, of who Jesus is. And we can press on to discover who God, God truly is. And when we discover who God truly is, we can continue to follow Jesus beyond baptism and Sunday school. We can leave our frame of thinking and follow Jesus' teachings like the chosen disciples did, except Judas. <laughs> and maybe, just maybe, we'll choose to keep believing when our faith is challenged, when we can't see our way, when our friends forsake us or governments abandon us, when earthly structures no longer serve us, Maybe we'll choose to say with conviction, like Simon Peter, to whom else can I go? For I have come to believe and know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Now, family, I don't know what shift has to occur in your heart and mind for you to decide to follow Jesus this way. I don't know what preconceived notions about being a disciple you will have to let go before you start or even start anew on this type of faith walk with Christ. I don't even know what you're going to have to put down in order to take up your cross for real and follow Jesus. But what I do know is that relationship with God through faith in Christ begins with a choice. And I also know this choice didn't start with us. It began with God's choice to be in relationship with us as creator and creation. So now, guess what? It's our time to choose. So what choice will you make today? And I'm going to borrow the words that Jesus spoke in this gospel. 
Do you wish to go away? And we've already seen the answer choices, right? We got an A and a B and a C. <laughs> we can choose A. We can be like Judas. We can remain hard-hearted, unchanging, unrepentant. And all the while, we can go to church. We can sing in the choir. We can even serve as a trustee or usher or any other roles that we serve in our faith communities. Choice B, we can turn back. We can stop attending worship service, because y'all know how we do if the preacher preaches something and we think they're talking about our business, we think they're telling stuff and we're not trying to hear it, or if the board makes a decision that we don't like, then I'm not trying to go there. (laughs) I'm not saying y'all do it. Y'all heard people do that. Because that is the bottom line, that people find all kinds of reasons to stop following Jesus in whatever way we know how because of what people do. It's almost like we blame God, right? Well, if they're going to do that, I'm not going to go to church. God is like, well, what does that have to do with me? But that's our choice. We can turn back. That's choice B. But I implore you, I really want to tell you, your best option is C to confess with our mouths that we have come to believe and know that Jesus is in fact and indeed the Holy One of God. And that is the choice of discipleship we all must make. Amen.